Okay, so Jacob part two, and we are going to be in chapters 29 to 36. So where we left off the story, Jacob had had his dream at Bethel of the ladder. Can y'all hear me okay in the back row? Is loud enough? Am I loud enough? Okay. And uh, was just about to go on the lamb. <laughs> and what he's going to do in chapters 29 through 31, so three chapters of material, we're going to get this, this cycle story about Laban. Now, uh, we talked about how J- the, one of the main themes of Jacob's life is, is conflict and how he navigates that. He obviously had conflict with his older brother, technically. Uh, they're twins, so, you know. Um, does it really matter that much? I guess it does, back in the day. Firstborn's a big deal. So he had um, uh, conflict with Jacob from the beginning. There was all this drama with Isaac and Rebecca. Um, now he's going to go get into some drama and conflict elsewhere. <laughs> and he, everywhere, everywhere he goes. Now there's reconciliation at the end, so that's good. Um, but this whole episode, I don't know if you guys read the chapters we're reading today, but the whole episode with Dinah is a little disturbing. So I don't, the Laban material is, we're going to paraphrase it because I really want to focus tonight on 32 through 35. Um, the, the Laban cycle doesn't really advance the theology much of Jacob and his family, like the it's almost like it's, again, there are several places like this in Genesis where it's almost as though um, it's a, kind of a drop-in short story, almost. But he goes to, uh, his mother wants him to get, uh, wants him to get safe, safely away from his brother. And so he goes back to where Abraham was from, and he, he meets uh, Laban. So let's just read a few verses, and then we'll kind of paraphrase. So 29, chapter 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying there beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban? Ah, we do know Laban. Uh, and here's his daughter, Rachel, coming with the sheep. So Laban is his uncle, right? So Rebecca's brother. And he's got two daughters. And when Jacob sees Rachel, that's the daughter he wants to marry. Is that the only daughter he marries? No. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> he's going to marry sisters, which I, I, I guess, I mean, you know, it was a long time ago. Say again. And they are first cousins. Anybody from Arkansas here? Can I make an Arkansas joke? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes. So he marries not just one, but two of his first cousins, and not just two of his first cousins, but sisters. So that's not at all complicated in any way. It's just fine, surely. So then Laban, like he, he negotiates with Laban, who uh, ends up getting him to stay for a long time where he is. So he, he wants to marry Rachel. Laban says, that's ah, fine, but you got to work for, was it seven years? Is that right? Um, and then somehow there's a really weird story where, <laughs> Laban, like, well, you, did you read it on the wedding night? So uh, it's supposed to be Rachel, but 
Laban slips Leah in there. I, this is, uh, th- listen, there's parts of the Bible that my kids can just read when they grow up. Let me just tell you that. Because <laughs> that's a really weird story. Uh, so then Laban's basically like, ha ha, I got you. <laughs> He's like, no, I want Rachel. And uh, so he has to work six, seven more years for, for Rachel. Is that the way the story goes? Uh, and then they're, they start having kids. And Leah has the kids first. And we got, and you know, there's the tribes tra- trace their lineage to each of the kids. So Leah has her kids. And then, well, let's see, 2931. There we go. Let's just read this. It's relevant. So um, verse 30, chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Obviously, this is a theme that is very consistent throughout uh, Genesis. And in this particular family, and not, and not just in this particular family, but in the, in the kind of primary, the main woman, like the woman through whom the lineage is going to be traced. The barrenness happens all the time. And, it's, and that is a, a way for, theologically speaking, that's a way for God to show God's favor to this particular lineage. Makes sense? I mean, it sounds weird that she would be barren, but God ends up making it work out. So Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. I, I feel bad for Leah, by the way, right? I mean, she gets, yeah, okay. Um, verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Jeez, uh, he has given me this son also. So he shall, so she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. She conceived and bore a son again and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So the first four kids are from the accidental wife. Yes. And what's also interesting is uh, when he leaves, well, well, we'll come back to it. All right. 30. So when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or, I'll sh- or, I'll sh- or I shall buy. Jacob became very angry with Rachel and said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? These are not advanced relationship skills here that Jacob is. <laughs> I mean, so now the conflict is with the wife whom he clearly loves. I mean, Rachel is clearly the, the love of his life, the way Genesis tells the story. So we, he's had conflict with Esau. Obviously, he had conflict with Isaac because of the whole blessing thing. He's had some conflict with Laban. Now, even the apple of his eye, the love of his life, the, the woman he truly does love, he's got to be blaming her infertility on her. Then she got all Sarah on him. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? <laughs> Here's my maid Bilhah. Go in to her that she may bear upon uh, my knees and that I too may have children through her. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore, a, bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son, therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. That's weird. How's that, where'd that come from? Why are you dragging Leah into this? It's not her fault. Uh, so she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children. She took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. This is not... Sheesh. People, there are other ways to... Uh, first of all, six is probably enough. Right? Are we at six right now? Am I counting that right? All right. More coming. We've got to double it. We've got to double it. We're only halfway there. 
Uh, so then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Oh, that, sorry, Leah said that. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, this gets, I don't know if there's some innuendo going on here, but like, I don't know, this whole story, this family. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, uh, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Gosh, Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Like, what? What is this? When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he's like, that's really weird. No, he didn't say that. He's like, all right, sure, whatever. So he lay with her that night, and God heeded Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son, her fifth son. Um, let's see. Leah said, God has given me my hire because I gave my maid to my husband, so she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good dowry. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons, so she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she named him Joseph. Joseph is going to obviously be a favored child. And we see how that turns out, right, when mama favors one over the other. Now, in this case, it's Rachel's only son, but um, Jacob's going to have a special place in his heart for him too, and that's going to cause some conflict that we'll read about starting next week. Uh, and she, she said, may the Lord add to me another son. So when Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I might go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go for you know very well the service I have given you. But Laban said to him, if you'll allow me to say so, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. You're like the goose that laid the golden egg. You can't go. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me, for you had little before I came. It's increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again feed your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages um, so I'm going to skip some of this because that's an interesting story, but let's jump down. So there's this weird thing with the livestock and there's prayers and troughs and speckles and spots and stuff. Bottom line, Jacob leaves rich <laughs> by, by the time he's done with Laban. So let's jump down to 43, 31, 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsfolk, gather stones. And they took stones and they made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it that name, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he called it Galid and the, per, the pillars Mitzpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. If you ill treat my daughters, or if you take wives in addition to my daughters, 
Though no one else is with us, remember that God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and see the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and the pillar to me for harm. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice on the height and called his kinfolk to eat bread. And they ate bread and tarried all night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban rose up and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And he departed and returned home. So that is, in fact, uh, he's reconciled now. Like they, they worked it out. So this, this story is closed. Isaac's still alive at this point, although, as we talked about last week, Isaac is a, a muted character in the story. doesn't come up very much. Uh, Esau is the boogeyman that's out there. So when Jacob flees, he arrives as a refugee with nothing. Many, many years later, I think it was 20, if I did my math correct, correctly, uh, he comes, he's headed back home to the promised land, to uh, face the music with Esau, and he's very rich. And now we get into uh, this chapter 32, which Brueggemann, in his commentary, uh, writes that this is perhaps the most extensively interpreted text in all of the patriarchal materials. Not the part about, not the first part of the chapter, but the second part of the chapter where, where Jacob wrestles the angel. It's the source of tremendous art, it's the source of a lyric in my favorite band, U2's, one of their fa- one of the most famous songs. Um, I think depending on where you are and theologically, uh, where you are in history, you're going to interpret who this character is that he meets differently. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll chat about that some. But this chapter 32 uh, really is, a, is, there's so much going on here. That's why I wanted to allow us the time to, to kind of dive into it. So, 32. Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. (laughs) So despite the complexity of his character, despite the fact that he is a problematic patriarch, it is clear from the beginning and through it all that God is with him. So he's he's, uh, headed back for this uncertain homecoming to face the brother who's got a legitimate beef against him. And Jacob knows that. It'll become clear from the text. Um, But the angels of God are still attending him, which I... I think it's uh, interesting. So the angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place uh, Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now, and I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves, and I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So it's a deferential message for Esau. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you with 400 men. <laughs> and Jacob's like, oh goody. <laughs> Actually he wasn't. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Rightly so. He knows how he's treated Esau. He knows, I mean, he's older and wiser. He's been blessed many times over with stuff and heirs really all you could ever want in that part of the world at that time. He knows he's the, uh, he will have the land <laughs> if he goes back by, by right, but he also knows that, that he and Esau need to, need to make it right, he, that he needs to make it right with Esau specifically. 
Um, so he's greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies, thinking if Esau comes to the one company and destroys it, then the company that's left will escape. He's no dummy. <laughs> and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. That We skipped over that, but that was an earlier chapter. I am not worthy of the least of all, the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. So I went away poor, I came back rich. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. A little different than the last time we heard him talk to God at Bethel. If you do all this for me, then fine, you can be my God. Now it's like, pretty please don't let Esau kill me even though he's got good reason and he's got those 400 guys so he spent that night there and from what he had with him he took a present for his brother Esau 200 female goats and 20 male goats 200 ewes and 20 rams 30 milch camels and their colts 40 cows and 10 bulls 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys this is like an unimaginably bountiful gift peace offering for his brother these he delivered into the hands of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove, like make it one wave after another. Oh, there's more stuff. Oh, and you get this. Oh, and how about this? He's no dummy. He instructed the foremost, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself spent that night in the camp. So he's got his appeal to mercy to God. And he's got his flat out bribe for his brother. But because, I mean, um, we could breed a whole bunch into Jacob's motivations here, but he's, he's, he's doing what God told him to do, on the one hand, to returning home. Again, we skipped over that part with that Laban stuff. Um, but he's made it right with Laban. You know, he, he did the honorable thing in his mind. He, he worked all that he said he was going to work, even though Laban pulled a fast one on him with the Rachel Leah thing. And now, I don't know, we have to decide for ourselves, like, about his character. And then there's this, and this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. So this, um, Roy Heller, who you've heard me talk a lot about, it was that last day of class in the Old Testament, and we had all wrestled with these texts. And there, you know, there are some weird ones in here that we've already wrestled with. There are some really bad ones later. Get into Joshua and Judges. There's all kinds of stuff that God's telling people to do that just doesn't make any sense to us. And Roy, at the end of the year, said... Uh, that, and I, I mentioned this already, but I, I love telling the story because it was so impactful. So it's a room full of preachers, a room full of wannabe preachers, I guess is probably the best way to put that. And <laughs> my wife likes to say, you have to have a little bit of an ego to be a preacher because you think people, you have something to say that people want to hear. <laughs> um, which is fair, but also there's the Holy Spirit and all that, right? There's the call and all that. So imagine a bunch of preachers who have read the Bible before and um, 
most of whom come with lots of opinions about what's in there and what's not, uh, most of whom don't have any problem arguing with an Old Testament professor about something they read that he said they didn't like, blah, blah, blah. But so at the end of the year is when he says, if you have gotten through this entire year and you have read everything I've told you to read and you've read all of that Old Testament and you have not found something in here that you just flat out can't, not, can't accept, that, you, that makes you uneasy, that makes you troubled, that you don't want to tell your kids, or that you just, and he, and he paused real briefly, said that you just flat out don't agree with, because that's pushing it a little bit. He said, if, if that's the case for you, then you've not read it closely enough, and you need to come back and repeat my class next year, because <laughs> you need to read it again. And he said, uh, if you approach these texts honestly, and I think for Roy it was the same with the New Testament, some places in the New Testament, then you are going to get hit in the face with something that really either shakes your faith or challenges you or makes you second guess what you think about God. And you've got a couple choices. You can ignore it <laughs> and never talk about it, never teach it in the Bible study, never wrestle with it. He said, that's chicken and out. Um, you can pretend it's not there, um, or you can engage with it, and you can read it again, and you can reread it, and you can pray about it, and you can think about it, and you can try to have it make sense in the broader scope of all of these amazing narratives and stories that you've all placed your salvation in. <laughs> like, you've, you, you trust this enough to have devoted your life to this. And it was the same for a disciple. You know, it's not just preachers. This is all of us. Like, this is what we bet our life on <laughs> and our eternity on. So the, the texts that are really hard, you got to stick with them. And he used some metaphors. Um, and he, the first is a, a tango. Has anybody in here ever tangoed? Like a tango can feel pretty out of control. My wife's the dancer in our family. I am not. So I tried the, the best that I can to follow her. <laughs> and she's, you know, she's, uh, I'm going to say bossy. I think she, she's fine with me saying that. So I, it's, she's comfortable leading, let me put it that way. Um, but the, the only thing that you, the only, the only way you can fail at a tango is if you let go of your partner. You can't do that, right? You lose. You failed. Um, or, he said, uh, he used the metaphor of the cocktail party. I'm sure you, I've told you this before. So you're throwing a, a cocktail party uh, at your place in heaven, and you invite all your biblical heroes. And, uh, you know, Jesus is hanging out, and he's dealing with the water and the wine because you've got a bunch of drinkers at your party. And then you've got... Uh, you know, Joshua and David are playing craps in the, in the living room or poker or whatever. And then you've, there's a ruckus on your front lawn. So you go out to your front lawn and you got Moses and Paul. And Moses, who's pretty opinionated, is saying the law is the most important thing in your spiritual journey. And Paul's saying, no, the law is not your taskmaster. And they're fixing to get into a fight. And you're like, whoa, 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 guys, what are you doing? And then they look at you and they say, what do you think? And it's good to have an answer. And he said, as an Episcopalian, I can use the cocktail party metaphor, because whenever there's four Episcopalians, there's always a fifth. <laughs> That's what he said. But then the other metaphor that he used is this one from Genesis 32. He, got, he, he pulled this text out and read it. And um, wrestling with God is the metaphor he used. For the stuff in Scripture, this is really hard. And there's, there's, you know, the older I get, the more I read it, the less that's really hard. I mean, there, there are some of the stuff that he's, you know, that's said about women that clearly I just reinterpret for a modern context. And um, there's stuff about, you know, I don't believe God told the Israelites to kill everybody. I mean, I, 
that's, some of that's contextual, um, but still, you, get, you can't just ignore it, right? So here's, let's, let's read this. I know you've read it before, but it's so, so good. So the same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. <laughs> he took them and sent them across the stream, <laughs> and likewise, everything he had. They're on Esau's side of the river, <laughs> in case you're still unclear about Jacob's character. <laughs> He's, he's on the safe side of the river. His wife and kids and all the stuff on the other side of the river. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So it's pitch black, can't see him, doesn't necessarily know who it is. No light, right? Random guy shows up. Um, different traditions interpret this different ways, um, but I, I think the vast majority of the Judeo-Christian tradition interprets this as either God himself or a divine representative of God, an angel, because of what, how it ends. So when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, <laughs> if it's God or a divine representative, we should let that sink in. So Jacob is a pretty formidable fella, clearly. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he the divine personage, said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He is, he will hold out, he will do anything for a blessing, this Jacob, right? So he said to him, uh, what's your name? He said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. The most common uh, translation for Israel is he who strives with God, one who strives with God, wrestles with God. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked me my name? And there he blessed him. Only Moses gets his name. That's later. Jacob's oppressive, but he doesn't get to know God's name. That's kind of cool, I think. Um, so Jacob, verse 30, called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip, Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. That's not clear. So the question is, did Jacob know that he was divine as they wrestled? The text is not explicit about that. Um, he knows that he's a formidable opponent. I imagine, so one very early interpretation of this text is that maybe a very early version of the story is that it's Esau, that Esau shows up and says, fine, let's, let's hash this out. Um, clearly by the time it gets put down in the version we have now, it's not Esau because he and Esau are going to reconcile here in a minute. But it's unclear who he is. And um, what comes to us in the narrative is that just a random dude shows up and, you know, it's a moment of high tension for Jacob. He's already on high alert. He's already sent the bribe across the river. Uh, he, maybe he thinks it's one of the 400 guys that Esau has with him until at some point it becomes clear that it's not. I mean, the, the asking for a blessing is not necessarily, um, that doesn't uh, require that he thinks it's a divine person, a divi uh, like a divine personage. It could just be, you know, like Isaac. Like lots of people bless people all the time. Um, but then by the time the narrative's over, it's pretty clear that Jacob realizes something pretty unique has happened. And... Uh, the thing that I love about this is that 
wrestling with God leaves a mark. <laughs> right? So God meets us where we are and is okay with the wrestling, clearly. Um, and doesn't whoop us, even though God could. But we get a blessing and we get a limp. <laughs> or Jacob does. But we're, you know, with every one of these texts, we really should be looking for where we can connect to the text. Very rarely can I read that story out loud without getting emotional. It's just a great, great metaphor for the life of faith. Now, everything that's led up to this point is, I mean, it's, it's very, uh, it's clearly a story about Jacob. It's clearly a story about how um, Israel is an imperfect uh, bearer of the blessings of God, but is blessed nonetheless. And this character who, whose life to this point has been one long series of conflicts comes out of this encounter and is immediately going to reconcile with his oldest conflict. There's something to that, <laughs> that this encounter with God has in some way changed him. And then the, the terrible story about the rape of Dinah, um, uh, Jacob doesn't like what his sons do. Now, he also doesn't do a whole lot to defend his daughter. There's some cultural stuff going on there, I'm sure. But he, he is definitely changed by this encounter. I would say. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So when we, when we wrestle with God, we have a chance to improve, to be better, to be better than, we, than when we started wrestling. So we bring all of these imperfections, we bring all of this baggage of our life into this encounter with God, and, uh, and it's in that striving somehow that we grow closer. And so Roy's point was, same, with the wrestling match, it might get a little bumpy in there, but again, the only way to, to lose is to let go or to walk away. And his point was don't do that with the Bible. There's going to be stuff you don't like in here. There's going to be stuff that pushes you, challenges you, maybe even some stuff you disagree with. Don't let it go because ultimately there's a blessing in it. I love that. God, I love that. Yeah, that deconstruction. Yes, yes, yes. So the comment is um, it is possible to get into this kind of deconstructive mode, which is what like seminary is kind of designed to do that. It's kind of because you have to kind of take apart what you've inherited and put it back together in a way that's life-giving for you. And um, some people show up to seminary with, um, with, like this is the stages of faith thing that Fowler did. You, we start out in our faith and we, we believe what our parents tell us or what our pastors tell us. And that is, I am here for it. Right? That's the job of the church. It's the job of parents to give kids a foundation in the faith. But then at some point, uh, just like in adolescence, a child's identity is you know, kind of imprinted on them by their parents. But then in adolescence, when they start realizing that they are not their parents, then they, then they start trying to claim their own identity. And that self-differentiation can feel like rejection for parents. Uh, I was a youth minister for a long time. I did a fair amount of this, now I'm experiencing this. <laughs> it, can feel, it, can feel, it can feel like rejection when really it's just a necessary develop, uh, personality step for them. So that then when you reconnect or when they, when, they, um, like when they get through that journey, then you relate to your kids in a different way as an adult than you do when they're kid, children, obviously. So with faith, you know, that, that hand-me-down faith is... Um, is absolutely essential, and all and everyone in here may end up having the same faith that their parents gave them. That's not wrong, at all. 
I hope it works for my kids, honestly. Uh, but until we kind of understand why we think that, and it's not just that this is what mom told me or dad told me or the preacher told me um, or the church told me, <laughs> for those of us who are Catholic, uh, once we, we make it our own and ask those hard questions and it, and it kind of becomes a systematic thing for ourselves, then we have this very rich relationship with God that's different than this beginning, which can kind of be come from a place of fear, right? I mean, you don't want to be different. You don't want to feel, you don't want to reject uh, what you've inherited. Like there's, you don't want to lose relationships, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's good for keeping them out of the cookie jar. But then if, they, if I want them to stay and come back and have a relationship that's meaningful long term, they've got to kind of work through all that. So what happens in seminary is there's a uh, very thorough <laughs> deconstruction of biblical texts and doctrines and all the humanity that went into developing the doctrines and all of the church fathers and the politics of what they were working through. Um, and either, for some people, that destabilizes their faith system so much that they can't come back to it. And um, that's, it does require a gentle hand <laughs> by a professor to do that. Yeah. So um, she's saying that uh, the independence thing, but say more about the independence thing. What do you mean? Well, you mean as the children or as uh, the as No, the, for the faith. For, oh, for the faith. Yeah, yeah so. And their commitment towards God. Right. So, uh, of all the possible things that could have gone, like there is some factor of X. So if X ends up in the Bible, some factor of X was possible to have ended up in the Bible, right? There are all kinds of stories about, uh, there's all kinds of material I'm sure that didn't make it in the Bible. There's all kinds of, like there are other gospels that didn't make it in the Bible. So the people who guided by the Holy Spirit, we always have to say that, selected these texts to be the ones that were handed down. Um, I, I do think that it's, I think that Israel, our, our, Jew, our Israelite ancestors, were extremely comfortable with ambiguity and imperfection. They did not have to have faith heroes um, whitewashed. <laughs> Some, somebody could have left out the story of Bathsheba. I'm sure David would have preferred that, right? His PR firm would not have been on board with including that part of the story. But you could have told a much more sanitized version of Jacob's story too. If you were the person who was responsible to scribe in, in the reign of Solomon who was re, uh, responsible for including these texts and I mean there weren't that many it wasn't a computer file, right? You had one scroll. <laughs> so you could have just left some of this stuff out. The fact that they didn't I think is very empowering for us because we know that our, like the, the paragons of the faith, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those three men in particular, were incredibly imperfect. <laughs> and if those guys, through whom we claim our relationship with God, uh, are imperfect, then, me, then I, as an imperfect person, can be a faithful follower of God, too. I, that's really, I mean, I think that's super empowering, you know? Yeah. So uh, the question is, in seminary, do we ever get a Jewish perspective, like from a, a rabbinic scholar or... Um, any of the, the Mishnah, the Midrash, like the commentary that Jewish scholars have on these stories that adds a whole layer of character. Um, and we didn't get a whole lot into that because uh, we were dealing, there's so much to deal with in our own tradition. 
we were made aware of it for sure. And there were um, like the, the, so we had the primary texts of the scriptures and then you've got the, the textbooks about the, the books, about the book. Some of those textbooks were Jewish scholars who would allude to it, but we never did study it in depth. But there is a whole, you guys know that? So there's a, in Jewish scholarship, the rabbis had a whole layer of extra stories about Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and explanations for what, how this story relates to that story. It's fascinating, but that's a whole second degree. Whitney was tired of paying for school, so. <laughs> All right, well, let's see how it turns out with Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, ooh, and those 400 men with him. <laughs> so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front. <laughs> I mean, if you have to rank them, though, you know, it's the, it's the maids' kids first, right? For, I mean, the, the first to go have to be those according to I'm, I'm Jacob now. I'm totally kidding. Okay. Um, then Leah with her children. <laughs> if you're wondering who's first in his heart. And Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him. This is not what we expect, right? This is not what we're expecting right now. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Oh, that all family reconciliation could be that easy. Can I just send you 200 goats and we call it even? <laughs> when Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand, for truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. And he would know, because he just met him. Since, he, uh, since you have received me with such favor, please accept my gift that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have everything I want. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go alongside you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are overdriven for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. <laughs> I mean, maybe they aren't entirely reconciled. Jacob's like, no, nah, you go on ahead. Let's, you, you, you go ahead. It's fine. I'll, I'll leave some of my guys with you. Ah, well, he said, why should my Lord be so kind to me? So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to uh, Sukkot, is actually how you say that, and built himself a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the place is called Sukkot. That's a festival, a Jewish festival of booths. It's a longer story. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Uh, and he camped before the city and the sons of... Okay, blah, blah, blah. All right. So they are reconciled. Now, 34. Do you guys want to talk about chapter 34? Or is that... Um, I mean, the story is this... Uh, I mean, for, for uh, Jacob's brothers... For Jacob's family, it would be foreigners. So these, non, these Canaanites, um, one of them wants to... Well, 
he sexually assaults Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And then he decides that he wants to marry her. He, listen, there's a whole deconstruction thing we could do with this story. Um, and then Jacob's brothers, or Jacob's sons, rather, Dinah's brothers, uh, trick the, the rapist and his family and say, you know what, fine, but you have to be circumcised first if you're going to marry our daughter. And so they, this, these folks assume, oh, everything's good. So they circumcise them, and then while they're still weak, then they, they kill them and take all their stuff. And um, You know, it's not great. Um, let's, let's jump to 25 and just read that part. So chapter 34, verse 25. On the third day when they were still in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city unawares and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his, daughter, and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the other sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. Then they took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all the little ones, their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and made their prey. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of this land. I would have preferred him to say something about Dinah here, but that's, Dinah is, uh, you know, I mean, this is, one of the, this is one of the stories when you do feminist um, critique of scripture, this is one of the first stories you talk about because like there's a crime that's been committed and no one really cares about Dinah. I mean, it's an honor thing for her brothers and a way for them to get, get rich off of this. So um, anyway, but that's, this, that's a whole separate Bible study. So you brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should our sister be treated like a whore? So I'm going to, I, I want to go ahead and read um, 35 to close out the, the Jacob story. Um, 36 is about descendants and clans and kings. It's a genealogy, and there is some interesting stuff in there, but not, I don't think anything that should bog us down. So God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and settle there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So that's where, where he saw his vision. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, that I may make an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Boy, that is true. God is on his side. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak that was near Shechem. This is going to be a thing always with Israelites, right? It's always about, you know, marrying girls who like other gods. <laughs> Don't do that. And if you, and I know you're hanging out and you're best friends with this pagan who's got the little wooden gods. Don't mess with that. I mean, it's going to come up over and over and over again. This is the early kind of hint of that. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, an altar and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed to himself to him when he fled from his brother. It's the, the latter scene. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So it was called that, Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Paran Aram, and he blessed him, God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel said, uh, Israel shall be your name. And Jacob said, Yeah, we covered that in 32, God. I got it. So he was called Israel. That's 
indications of another tradition has been woven in. So one of those is the Elohist, one of those is the Yahwist, and a scribe didn't feel like he could leave out that. Does that make sense? I mean, there's no need to repeat that. We already know that. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. So the promise to Abraham has been passed down to Isaac and now has once again been passed down to Jacob, who has returned to the promised land, a wealthy man. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from uh, Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing, for she died, she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to uh, Ephrath, that's Bethlehem. (laughs) That'll come up again (laughs) much, much later. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his, it's the first time he's called him that. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and, oh, okay, then we got some other stuff there. Twelve tribes, get the twelve tribes there. Jump down to 27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, where Abraham and Isaac had resided as aliens. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. So these two conflicts are also resolved. Rachel, that they worked that, that a long time ago. That is a, the Jacob cycle, you know, we could spend six months on, on the Jacob cycle because there's a lot going on there and there's some stuff we skipped over that has its own kind of charm and interest. But uh, I do like this life of conflict, this life of um, like this problematic kind of grasping life ends up in a kind of uh, peaceful conclusion to that cycle. We're gonna get, I mean, we're going to hear more about Jacob, but that portion of the story has come to a kind of a neat end, and Jacob walks away from it, blessed and with a limp. And I think that's awesome. So the, the question is, um, so we, we think of an eye for an eye when we think of the Old Testament. In fact, that's codified, right, in the law. Um, is that kind of the predominant theme that we think? Is that what you're... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. So it's clear that the tit-for-tat violence that we read all throughout the Old Testament um, was absolutely culturally conditioned. It's also true that when it becomes codified in the law, uh, that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that that is actually a limiting factor because they used to do, you guys ever see the Untouchables? So Sean, Sean Connery, like, they bring a knife, you bring a gun, they kill your brother, you kill their family. Like, that escalation of violence was the norm in, in the ancient Near East, which we see, by the way, in that story with Jacob's, uh, Dinah's brothers. Um, there were other ways to have resolved that conflict than, than what they did. So, 
what the law gives us is a step in the right direction from a Christian perspective. And then what Jesus will give us in the New Testament is a reinterpretation of the law. We, so if an eye for an eye is an improvement from the status quo and um, uh, a better way to interact with one another than most of our pagan neighbors, Jesus raises it like 15 notches by saying, turn the other cheek. Um, there's part of me that's way more comfortable with an eye for an eye, <laughs> right? I mean, I think all of us kind of, we get that. That's more visceral for sure. But it is important for us to remember that that was to, to limit the kind of thing that we saw in Genesis 34. All right, you guys, it is awesome spending time with you next week. I don't know if it'll, I'll be, I don't know if we have a playoff game next week, but I may show up like this. I may not, but go in peace. Thanks. God bless you.